the sermon isn't all that different than the song. We don't really need a sermon, do we? It's just basically the 23rd Psalm. As long as we came over here. Psalm 23, verse 4. Our point of accentuation this morning is desperation. Let's go back a week, shall we? Our key word as we started our service was, blessed are the pure in heart. The heart set upon, fixated upon, single-minded, and set upon God himself. That's how we started our day. Blessed are the pure heart, they will see God. We ended our day in a prayer service here in this room with an abundance of worship and an abundance of the, of the presence of God. A sweet, sweet time together as we confess the sins of our nation, of the church, and as he ushered in and confirmed and responded to the purity of heart that we brought before him in prayer. Someone was there that night, and she sent me this email. I wanted to share this with you as you, basically CBC, are starting to see miracles. I will pray for your prayer ministry to grow for God's glory. The Sunday night prayer service was so spirit-filled. Being in the same place with intentional believers seeking God in a deeper and different way filled me with such joy. I even experienced a personal healing for a physical issue of my own. And I'm excited to see what the Lord has planned for CBC. Many blessings abound. Seems to be what's happening. The Lord is confirming his word, confirming his word with signs following. And I don't just take emails at face value. I confirm this. This woman was really healed, as others have been. Now, this young man we've been tracking that was <laughs> for basically has been snatched from the jaws of death, has come off the, uh, the ventilator, and he's gone. now he's in therapy, and he's lessened, and he's come out of this coma. Now he recognizes people, he knows who he is, and he knows his family members. This is wonderful. So we keep praying for David until he sits here in the pew, and then we'll keep praying for him still. Uh, so the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's the takeaway there? That was our first week. What's the takeaway? When we find that we're satisfied with God for who he is and not what he can do for us, get ready, you're going to be blessed. When your right priority is Christ, and I'm speaking to those who know him, and I'm also speaking to those who don't, when your first priority is Christ, you have no lack. You have the abundance of satisfaction just before he even begins to bless you. When he's sufficient enough, when his grace is sufficient, when he's sufficient, you shall not want for anything else. You'll be full. You'll live a full, satisfied life. That's satisfaction. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. That's the reflection. He, he wants us to live the examined life. The, the reflection, to see who we are in him, not in, apart from him. The, the examined life is, is, the, is the life that sees the need for Christ. The examined life is the life that sees a need for forgiveness. The examined life is the life that sees a need for mission and purpose and resolve and passion. If this world out there doesn't see passion in here, 
they, if they even realize they have an appetite for Christ, will lose it. You, you and I have to be passionate about our God, proportional to the degradation that's going on in this world. Satisfaction, reflection, he restoreth my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Restoration. He can do spiritual surgery on a man's heart, a man's mind, a woman's heart, a woman's mind, and restore, replenish, restock. So how do these healing hands take place? Well, the shepherd knows the tumors, the blemishes on his sheep. He touches them, he inspects them, he examines them. He leads them by the hand and makes them to lay down. He pushes them down to rest, to, to rest in the tender, loving mercies, the loving kindness, the tender green grass of God beside the still waters, and you will yield your fruit in season. And now today we come to this one verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Here we have David at his peak of desperation. He's in a crisis. His son is coming after him. His son is staging a coup d'etat. He wants to kill his own father. He has an army with him. It's the most dysfunctional family in the history of families. You thought yours was bad. This is worse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice the word walk. I like the word amble. I really like amble. I wish we'd start using amble. No one uses amble. We usually use walk. Well, use amble if you can. Fit it in this week. Use amble. It says something more than walk. Yea, though I amble through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, What's the point? Well, the point is, my friend, your spiritual walk cannot be a spiritual run. Sorry. When we conform to the patterns of this world, we get to running, we get to sprinting, we run out of breath, we run out of resources, we just wither up on the side in a fetal position wondering what happened to us. When we keep a pace that is far, far faster than an amble in a walk, we lose sight of the shepherd and we lose sight of the, sh- the flock. Walk, amble. Be poised, be controlled. We should be the poisest people on earth, poised for anything that comes our way. People live in the valley of the shadow of death. They, they live and move and breathe in the valley of the shadow of death. They expect something around the corner to threaten them. They, 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 they post it on their social media how many things are going to go wrong in the next six months and how we're just inches away from just total despair in the world. They live in the valley of the shadow of death. But the Lord is not their shepherd, and they want, they long for, they're incomplete. They need to be completed. They need to be topped off. They need something. They need some assurance, some anything. They'll take just being common people, belittling other people, just being cynical, just to feel a part of something. That's how empty this world is. They'll join a movement just to be cynical, to feel a part of something. They walk through the valley of shadow death. We should be the most poised, put together, self-controlled, processing people with the mind of Christ that aren't ruled by our flesh, our lust, our emotions. We ought to people have it together. And if you don't have it together, fake it till you make it. 
But when you're out there, fake it. When you get in here and you have to fall apart, fall apart. Fall apart at your kitchen table, but present yourself as a Christian, as a child of God, one who has a, an understanding and a wisdom where you've been, where you are, where you're going. You know how it ends. You know who the Lord is. You should be, I should be, the wisest people on the face of the earth, for we fear God. Let's put it together, shall we? Somebody put it together so that everything this world is looking for, they can look at it and see, that's what I want right there, that dude. See that dude? I don't know him, but that's the guy right there. He doesn't post this. He does post that. He doesn't wig out. He's not reactive. He's proactive. He's got it together. He's self-controlled. Man, there's something about that guy, something about that woman. They walk, they don't run, and they think before they speak, and they only speak when it's an improvement on silence, and where words are many, sin is not absent. This is a person who's got it together. That's you, and it ought to be me. Let's amble, shall we? See, the examined life is the less frenetic life. And here's a guy in the Mac Daddy of all crises that's walking. Not running. He's being chased, but he's walking. He's under threat of death, but he's walking. Putting one foot in front of the other, he's dealing with things as they need to be. Yea, though I walk through, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The kid, <laughs> the king's kids, of all people, on the face of the earth, however many true born-again Christians there are on this earth, those who truly do follow Christ, not answer some survey, survey in some way, if those of us who really follow Christ, listen, we are distinctive, our niche, uh, the way we identify ourselves, the way we're a dead giveaway to the world is we walk through problems, not around them. We walk through confrontation. We walk through troubles. We walk through trials. We walk through chronic illness. We don't go around it. We deal with things. This is the biggest weakness, the biggest weakness in people today. They won't confront. They won't talk. You have a problem with somebody, you'll talk behind their back. You'll talk about them. You'll never talk to them. It is the quintessential sign of immaturity I've ever seen. We are the king's kids. We go through valleys. We deal with people face to face. We, we show respect and honor for one another. We never gossip. The, the gossip in the New Testament is the biggest killer. It's the biggest killer of the church. We walk through valleys. Bring it on. We walk through trials and temptations. Bring it on. Jesus walked through Samaria. He never walked around it. Bring it on. We walk and we walk through. We deal with problems at work. We confront our boss in respectful ways. We, we illuminate one another with good, strong, critical thinking and objective, wise truth. That's who we are. We don't evade, hide, slither off. No, we deal with things. That's the king's kid. That's David. He's walking and he's walking through it. He's walking through the valley. Well, what is this word mean, valley? Well, it could be a lot of things. You ever seen the westerns where the bad guys hide out 
and it's a tall gorge with high walls, and they have the superior position. And whenever they have a campfire, that's the only way you know where they are. And all they're trying to do is, is lure the gun smoke guys and all the good guys into this thing so they can shoot down in them like, like picking off little ducks in a pond. Well, that's the valley. It's also the wadi, the dry riverbed that, that oftentimes people would have to take to traverse Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a crooked, ever-winding, tall-walled place where you're most vulnerable from above, and every time you turn the corner, you don't know if someone's standing there with a weapon to steal, to rob you on the Samaritan road, to leave you for dead, to kill you, whatever the case may be. It's a dangerous place. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In chapter 2 of Nehemiah, the, the, the dude, Nehemiah, shows up to Jerusalem, travels over 800 miles on horseback. It's at night, and he gets on a horse with two other people, and he drives through the city, and he's inspecting the city gates. Now, he comes to the valley gate. The valley gate is the gate that's furthest from other gates. It's a lonely gate. Even elevation-wise, it's the lowest gate. He, it's, it's a metaphor for tough times in life. It's a metaphor for trials and tribulations. That's what it is. And he, and he inspects the valley gate, and he keeps going. Eventually, he goes past the dung gate, and he comes to the fountain gate. Now, the fountain gate, the fountain gate is the king's garden. It has the most pristine, drinkable water. It's, a, it's an oasis is what it is. It's a metaphor for the Spirit of God, for the enriching and enlivening vigor of the life of Christ. But when he gets to the fountain gate, there's too much rubble in the way. He can't make his way through there. It's dark and there's rocks and the wall's broken down and he has to turn back. And to re-enter the city, he has to go back through the valley gate. Well, there it is. There it is right there. So many people today walk from the valley gate, live in the valley gate, and, and, and want the fountain gate so bad, but there's so much rubble there, rubble that needs to be removed, and they're never willing to do the work, or no one ever really teaches them how to do it. They, they have unconfessed sin. They have a hardened heart towards somebody. They have bitterness or unforgiveness. They have these boulders in their life. They have a chip on their shoulder with God, and these rocks just keep them from the fountain gate. Can't even enter. Can't even go in. And they return to the valley gate. And their life seemingly is a nothing more than a repeating of the valley gate over and over and over. And David says, I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to make this happen. Yea, though I amble, walk through the valley, the steep walled, walled gorge where I'm most vulnerable. Where I'm going to, it's the valley of what? It's the valley of the shadow of death. Distress. Extreme danger. It's night in the daytime there. And it's never day in the nighttime. It's, it's, it's dark even in the, in the heat of the day in that desert down there. Some of you have been with me down there. You know what that's like. It's, there's shadows there, and you don't know who lurks and who sits and lies in wait for your well-being. It's dangerous. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I mean, what he's saying is it's not going to get much worse than this. This is imminent danger. This is uh, uh, me against 10,000. This is my own son betraying me. This is a horrific place to be. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to turn tail and run. I'm going to go through this situation. I'm going to trust God going through it. Who's in a trial today? Go through the trial and you'll experience this. Pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. The trials that we have in our life that we're not spared of, that we're allowed to experience in our life, have a purpose behind them. Fulfilling the purpose of the trial is of the utmost important to avoid its repetition. There's a lesson there, and God wants to go through it with you. Sometimes things get intense. They get aggravated. We get frustrated. We get exhausted. We get overwhelmed, we're just like depressed, and it's just too much, and it's heavy, and the idea is I ain't going through that. I'm not going through the other side of that. I'm turning, I'm going to run, I'm going to go, I'm going to flee, I'm going to run as fast as I can in the other direction. Elijah knows all about this. And somehow or another, you got to gather yourself up and say, no, I belong to the king, and he is dwelling within me, and where I go, so goes he And there's something before me I can't walk around. I need to deal with this. I'm going to move forward, ever forward, ambling by faith through a situation. And you might just find that God restores your business and your relationship. And you might find you're you're different as a result of going through it, not around it. This nation, at some point in time, will have to go through something. A day of reckoning will finally come at some point in time financially. Some situation that we've all been inevitably putting off for decades will eventually come. It's, it's mathematics. It's not a spiritual thing. It's not a prophecy. It's mathematics. Eventually, we've got to go through it. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Notice he says, I will not fear, because I'll fear no evil. Fear. We all have it. Be careful you don't set a bar so high to expect any and every person in your life, including yourself, to never be afraid. I've agonized, (laughs) I'm not using agonized in the same way that Jesus agonized in Gethsemane, but I have really looked that passage over, trying to identify what he felt and why he bled from the forehead and why he agonized in some deep distress over his inevitable arrest, torture, crucifixion, and death. I don't have the answers to it, but I can tell you this. He agonized over something. I would expect myself to agonize over something as well. I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. If fear is the right answer or the right word, I don't know, but it's close. I'm not afraid of death because I don't have a death. Death doesn't apply to me. 
and it doesn't apply to you who are born again. There is no death. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. It's an instantaneous, simultaneous transfer from one life to another. There's no death. I'm afraid of that. But what I agonize over, what I'm concerned about in my own personal life, my, I, I'm agonizing for you at times, for the church, for the opportunities that we have. Here's what I'm agonizing. I'm agonizing. I'm afraid of this. I don't want to ever grow indifferent to the proclamation of the gospel and the building of the kingdom. That frightens me. And I'm not apologizing for it. I'm afraid of uh, having a gr regret that I didn't do what I needed to do this side of this life in Christ for those who don't know him. I, I, I don't want to look back with a deep regret that I, I, I was, I'm concerned that I, I, I'm not placing too much on myself. I'm not loading up a lot of legalistic guilt. But I don't want to be one who puts off and doesn't go through what life brings my way so that I can share with other people the gospel of Jesus Christ. That concerns me. And I don't apologize for it. I'm concerned that I don't care enough or love enough or share enough or risk enough or worship enough or listen enough. I'm not trying to live a perfect life. But I'm concerned. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. I don't have a biological clock I'm concerned with. I do have a spiritual one. Tick-tock, tick-tock. To pretend like I'm not concerned about it is to be indifferent to the very gospel that saved my life and yours. You, should, you too should be concerned. He says, I'll fear no evil. Tertullian, a church father in the third century, put it this way, it's a poor thing to fear that which is inevitable. Apart from the rapture, friend, you're going to be dead as a doorknob. Physically. And so am I. Sometimes people will get gravely ill or they'll be diagnosed with something, and I sort of pray about it, and I discern, like, the person I'm about to call right now just find out that they have stage four this or stage five that. And I call them on the phone, and after praying about them, I ask them this question. If it's the right person and they have the maturity level to understand the motivation behind the question, I ask them this. Do you think the Lord is calling you home? See, the answer to that question is incredibly revealing. It tells me by their answer how they have processed or not processed in the relationship with Christ what this intervening um, intrusion of a disease has done his, to his or her relationship with Christ. And you know what? Sometimes the answer is, yes, I think he is. And then you know what? He doesn't. The real question is, do we fear that inevitable? Do we make him the focal point no matter how bad the trial is so that he's our sufficiency regardless of whether he does or doesn't help us? That's the point. Sometimes the Lord calms the storm. Sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. 
It's nice to know what he's doing in our life so we can understand his intent. One summer night, uh, one summer night during a severe thunderstorm, a mother was tucking her small son into bed. She was about to turn the light off when he asked in a trembling voice, Mommy, will you stay with me all night? Smiling, the mother gave him a warm, reassuring hug and said tenderly, I can't, dear. I have to sleep in Daddy's room. A long silence followed. At last it was broken by a shaky voice saying, Big sissy. Sometimes dads get it, get it hard, don't they? During World War II, a military governor met with General George Patton in Sicily. When he praised Patton highly for his courage and bravery, the general replied, Sir, I am not a brave man. The truth is, I am an utter craven coward. I have never been within the sound of gunshot or in sight of battle in my whole life that I wasn't so scared that I had sweat in the palms of my hands. Years later, when Patton's autobiography was published, it contained this significant statement by the general. I learned very early in my life never to take counsel of my fears. Some wisdom there. I will fear no evil, no wickedness, no harm, no hurt, no affliction. I'm going to give you five things that may help you if you walk in fear. Take your mind and put it on Christ, and take Christ and keep him on your mind. One of the verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26 and 3, is one of the most incredible anchor verses for someone who's unstable and really having doubts, really, about where they are in their relationship to God in the midst of a trial. Isaiah 26 and 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's it. It's so simple. When your mind goes far down the road ahead of you and starts living in an alternative universe and scenario that hasn't happened yet, you are riddled with nothing more, nothing less than anxiety. The absence of anxiety is the presence of the moment and living in it as much as you possibly can. Have have your mind on Christ and Christ on your mind. Second, the Lord will grasp if not, seize you. Isaiah 41 and 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Dismayed means glazed over, preoccupied, and caused to look away. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you. Which means to hold, grab, even seize, if necessary, with my righteous right hand. Number three, the Lord will not fail you. Deuteronomy 31 and 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them for the Lord your God. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Christ is your salvation. Isaiah 12 and 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For yea, the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. God is on your side. Now, you may not feel like God's on your side at times, but God is on your side. God is your biggest fan. Psalm 118 and 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I walked up on the North Sea in parts of Scotland, and I saw these statues out in front of churches, and I started to stop and read them, and Pastor Nathan would explain them to me and the history behind them. These were people that were burned at the stake right there in that spot on the sidewalk. 
And there were more than a few. You know, I'd have to say, if you're going to be martyred for the cause of Christ, that would be the worst way, I would think. There's nothing, the, the worst thing that I think any human being can experience on earth is probably the abduction of a child and not knowing where that child is. That's got to be the worst. But as far as perishing goes, I would say burned at the stake has is, is got to be the top of the list. And these people had in their constitution, in their spiritual constitution, a, so, a conviction for what they believed that so extended the depths of who they were that they did not fear what any man could do to them. That's amazing. That's God-given. For you are with me. You are with me. You have Christ in you, and he's with you, and he's before you, and he's around you, and he's behind you, and you even stand upon his truth, and angels encamp around you and above you because you fear God. This is how we amble. This is how we walk. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I like the idea that our shepherd is packing. I like that. He has a rod and a staff. He uses them to fend off those who come against the flock. You may not like hearing this about the loving, merciful, good shepherd, but at times, if someone would run off, the little, little sheep would run off too often, you know, that little crooked <laughs> staff thing, that would be used to break its leg. And then the shepherd would bind it up, put them over his shoulders, and walk them back to the flock. It makes a, <laughs> makes a whole nother meaning, a whole nother level of meaning to Hebrews 10 and 25. Don't forsake the assembly. Some are in the habit of doing. Oh, Lord. Can you imagine seeing people come to church just like cast on like this? Like, where you been? I, well, I went to, I've been gone for five or six weeks and I got this hit upside the shin by a shepherd's staff. But I made it up the driveway. Well, how'd you do that? It's a long way. Well, he carried me, dropped me off here at the narthex so I could come to the service. You are adequately equipped, divinely edified, to go through any situation that presents itself to you. You are, whether you realize it or not. For if you are his, you have within you the wherewithal and the resources, the counsel, the wisdom, the spirit, the fortitude, the energy, the clarity to move forward, walking through, through situations. The greatest enemy of the church, one of the top three anyway, has got to be legalism. It's easy to get someone out of legalism, but it's even more difficult to get legalism out of the person. But God can even do that as we perform our way and walk while performing our way through trials. He'll even do that. 
There isn't a situation that we're called to walk through that he can't deliver you from or help you with. Either, either eliminate the threat, eliminate the trial, or embolden you to meet the needs of it, whether it be business, relational, social, intellectual, physical, spiritual. Because he's packing, he has weapons, and no weapon formed against you will prosper. You will overcome by the power, the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, in the name of Jesus Christ. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. You have a staff and a rod of your own, and you wield the double-edged sword called the word of God. Nothing with the word of God returns void. You are a dangerous commando for the kingdom of God. But your weapons are love, forgiveness, understanding, clarity, wisdom, meekness, humility. Not judgment, not condemnation, not arrogance, not superiority. These are the weapons of the world. And there's a great clash coming called Armageddon. Be careful as you justify your intentions and as you bolster your energy for the kingdom of God. But you're walking, you're walking through, you're resting in the tender green grass of God. And he's your sufficiency, and you're not doing anything to bolster a better understanding of who you are and who you want to be. You're sacrificially following the good shepherd. We do that, we're in good shape. A divided world wants a church that is unified. A confused world wants a church with clarity. A fractured world wants a church where Christ holds all things together. An angry world and a fearful world needs a church that is loving because perfect love casts out fear. Let's pray. Bring to each of us an even deeper understanding and clarity as to how you would have us walk through whatever is in front of us despite the level of desperation, fear, trepidation, agony, uncertainty. Do that in and through us, with us, and overflow from us that we may learn how to navigate the storms of life. As you did for David, Lord, and do for us. As it is written, Lord, do unto us. In Jesus' name, amen.